0: Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven people, companies, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. In August of 2012, electronics retailer Best Buy was in big trouble. The company reported a loss of $1.7 billion in a single quarter. The former CEO was also in hot water for an alleged extramarital relationship with an employee. Morale was at an all-time low, to say the least. In August of that year, the board hired my guest today, Hubert Jolie, to take the helm. By June of 2019, when Jolie handed over the reins to his successor, Best Buy shares had soared 330% from about $20 to about $68. The S&P 500 rose 111% during that period, just for context. And in the quarter ending May of 2019, the 125,000 employee retailer had earned a 3% net profit margin, according to Bloomberg. In his new book, and the reason for him being here today, called The Heart of Business, Julie delves into his personal philosophy for achieving the kind of extraordinary outcomes he achieved at Best Buy. It centers on pursuing a noble purpose, putting people at the center, creating an environment where every employee can blossom, and treating profit as an outcome, not the goal. Hubert, welcome to Brand on Purpose. I mean, it's good to be here. I know we can see each other, you're really not blushing, but I feel like you should be blushing a little bit because I think I just scratched just a little bit of the surface of all your accomplishments. And what I forgot to mention is that in 2018, which is just a few years ago, cause I'm just gonna remove 2020 from our mindset. <laughs> uh, you were named one of the top 10 CEOs in the US by Glassdoor in 2019, and top 30 CEOs in the world by Barron's in 2018, and the top 100 best performing CEOs in the world by Harvard Business Review in 2018. By the way, the Glassdoor one is the one that's most amazing to me because Glassdoor is and can be unforgiving. Anytime you have anonymous reviews, it could be pretty hard. So excited to have you on the show. I just want to start at kind of one of the core precepts of your book, which is if you can describe for our listeners the difference between what you're calling noble purpose versus personal purpose especially as it relates to leadership and running an organization.
1: Yeah, and Aaron, uh, you know, you've been very kind. I'm not confused. I know that the performance of Best Buy came from the hard work of about 125,000 people. I was uh, one of them. I'm very clear about this. Uh, Yes, let's talk about, let's start with personal purpose. There's a question that, actually, if you go back to the early 90s, I was asked by two friends who happened to be monks to write with them articles about the philosophy and theology of work and at the time there was no internet so they said to look in the in the bible at all of the places that talked about work and of course work can have a bad reputation right work is like a curse a punishment because some dude sinned in paradise but when i went through all of the scriptures it's very clear that work is not a curse it's not a punishment it's part of our search for meaning as individuals. It's a calling to do something good in the world. And I love the poem by Khalil Gibran from Lebanon, work is love made visible. And so for all of us, there's this big question of why do we work, right? And how is it part of of this quest for meaning? We work a lot. And so people talk about work-life balance as if Life was outside of work. I don't agree with that. You know, work is not something you do so that you can do something else. It's part of our quest for meaning. So a key question at Best Buy was, you know, what drives you? There was a store manager in Boston. He would ask every one of the 100 associates in his store, what is your dream at Best Buy or outside of Best Buy? And then he would write it down in the break room, and he would say, my goal is to help you achieve your dream. So that's the personal purpose. The company purpose, the noble purpose for a company. I'm a big believer that, you know, Milton Friedman, you know, misled the world for way too many years. This primacy of shareholders, the idea that the only responsibility of business was to create shareholder value was so wrong. And it's a big part of the reason why we have, we're facing so many uh, crises today. If you think that a business, a company is an organization, is a human organization made of individuals working together in pursuit of a goal, then part of the discussion about personal purpose, that goal cannot be to make money, right? On my last day on this planet, I'm not gonna brag about the size of my banking account or because I made VP by the age of 30, who cares? Right, right. What good did I do in the world? Profit is an outcome, you said it. Of course we need to be profitable, but an excessive focus on profit is wrong, it's misleading, it can be dangerous. And I believe quite clearly, that's a belief that for a company the North Star is the pursuit of a noble purpose, which is doing something good in the world. So as an example, you know, at Best Buy, we decided that we were not a retailer. We were not a consumer electronics retailer. We were in the happiness business. We were in the business of enriching lives through technology by addressing key human needs. And that was a big part of our transformation. I'm happy to talk about it more, but that's the that was our North Star, which vastly expanded our addressable market. and made it easier for everybody to write themselves into that story. So these are the two notions, personal purpose and the company's noble purpose.
0: Do you then take issue with somebody who says, oh, don't take it personally, it's, it's just business? Because I historically have, because I do take things personally and people are like, no, it's just business. I'm like, but what's the difference? We're all humans. I don't agree with that. I imagine that you would agree with me not agreeing with that.
1: Yeah, I love this quote from Godfather, right? Tell Michael I actually liked him. It was only business, nothing personal. I think that business is about humanity. It's human beings serving other human beings, working together, and it's serving customers. It's partnering with vendors and partners. It's doing good in the community. And it's also taking care of shareholders You know who are there to take care of our retirement. Like in the last few months, it became so clear. Let's take a few examples. So Best Buy, headquartered in Minneapolis. After the murder of George Floyd, The city was on fire. Everybody, you know, whether it's Best Buy or Target, everybody had to close their stores. Well, let me tell you, Aaron, you cannot run a business if your stores are closed. Similarly, if the planet is on fire, you know, you cannot run a business. I think we have to make a declaration of interdependence. All of the stakeholders in business are mutually interdependent. I cannot do well by not doing some good in the world. If if the society in which I operate, the community is suffering. I'm not going to do well. And so I think it changes the perspective completely. So business is a very serious matter. And I think business can be a force for good. No doubt about this.
0: Thank you for the Godfather quote, by the way. My, my other favorite godfather quote i'm going to mess it up is uh in the first godfather when he's leave the gun take the cannoli which is like exactly. one of my favorites <laughs> and, uh, I don't, there's so many good
1: one, so let's not go there because right. that's not our purpose today no no
0: definitely not i just want to go back to a couple of things you said so the milton friedman notion that shareholders should be the number one focus and then more recently as you know and you're aware and i think alex gorsky from j&j even gave you a very strong endorsement for your book but and he sits on the, the business roundtable. Not long ago, they declared that shareholders not at the center, but it's multi-stakeholder. I'll be honest with you. I agree with it 100%, but I still question the authenticity and the intent and the genuine nature behind that statement. I don't think you're part of the business roundtable, but what I'd really like to see is how they turn those words into action and get others to do the same.
1: Yeah. So Aaron, I was actually a member of the roundtable until I stepped down, you know, past the baton, at the time, they they wrote the statement. I know Alex really well. I sit on his board uh, at Johnson, Johnson and Johnson. And Johnson Johnson, they've got this credo that you know their mission is to take care of patients and so forth. So all of the, all of the stakeholders. I think today it's become completely unarguable that we need to take care of all of the stakeholders. I think our employees are demanding that we do something good in the world, and that their experience working at the company is a positive one. Customers are demanding to do business with ethical companies, the uh, the communities, the society, you know, back to my George Floyd story. We cannot operate if the community is not healthy. And even shareholders are demanding this now. It's been a sea change in the last few months. You know, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, started to write to the CEOs of all of the major public companies in which they invested, which is pretty much everybody, two or three years ago, asking us, tell us about your long-term strategy. Tell us about your purpose. His last letter this year is all about climate change and diversity and inclusion, ESG investing, right? So this focus on the environment and society and governance is becoming huge. One of the things you do as a CEO of a public company is you meet on a quarterly basis, or your CFO does, with investors. Two years ago, the frequency of ESG matters coming up in investor meeting was probably once per year. Today, it's almost every meeting. And now I think it's perfectly acceptable to be skeptical if a company says all of these things. We just have to hold them accountable. And then if you work at a company, make it real. So I think we should talk about this because it's one thing to write down a beautiful purpose statement, but you cannot stay there. What you have to do is translate it into very concrete strategies and, how you deal with uh, with customers? So at Best Buy for us, you know, our purpose led us to get into the healthcare business because if we're here to address key human needs, health is a real human needs. And so we are helping aging seniors live in their home independently longer, but with the help of technology, we put sensors under the bed, under the the sofa, in the kitchen, the bathroom, fall detection, and with remote monitoring and uh, artificial intelligence in our care centers. We provide a service, right? We can detect if something bad is happening and then trigger an intervention. Interestingly enough, that service is not sold to our stores, it's sold uh, through insurance companies, but that's a growth opportunity. So you have to translate the purpose into specific initiatives, and then you have to work hard to make sure that everybody at the company you know, can connect with that purpose. So you have to make it completely real. But the example with my store general manager in Boston, asking all of the associates what is your dream and a turning point for us at best buy was every quarter with my executive team we would get together and work on the strategy the progress and so forth one evening during one of these meetings i'd ask every one of the executive team members to come with a picture of themselves as a five-year-old and ask them during dinner to share with each other our life stories and our purpose in life And it was striking, Aaron, how aligned we were in our desire to do something good in the world. I think that's in the heart of most human beings. Mm -hmm. And we'd say, why don't we use Best Buy as a platform to do this? And that was key to then move the company in that direction of enriching lives with technology by addressing key human needs. So I think it's absolutely legitimate to be skeptical when a company talks about purpose. You have to make it real. And as leaders at every level in the company. We have the opportunity to do
0: this. You also pulled off something that I'm not sure I can think of anyone who's pulled off and I may have to do a little research, but you did two things that are incredibly difficult. One, you turned around a company and two, at the same time, you also made the company purpose driven or purpose focused. Now, obviously, the two can be interconnected, but doing either one of those things with a high degree of success is difficult. Doing both of those things successfully is near impossible. So how did that happen? How did you do that?
1: And the two are completely intertwined. The philosophy behind the turnaround and research of Best Buy is exactly what you talked about at the beginning, Aaron, which is to pursue an noble purpose, put people at the center, create an environment where everybody can blossom and then treat profit as an outcome. It, let me make it very concrete. So back in 2012, we were supposed to die. When I was listening to advisors, investors, many were giving me the classical turnaround manual, which is cut, 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 right? Yeah. Prepare. You're going to have to close a lot of stores and fire a lot of people. Well, we did the opposite because actually I looked at the stores, pretty much all of the stores were profitable. So why should I close profitable stores? It made no sense. What I saw is that the world actually needed Best Buy, right? Customers, you know, for many of our technology purchases, we need to see, touch, and feel the products. We need to be able to ask questions. So we had a unique role to play for customers, and we had a unique role to play for vendors because they need a place where to showcase the fruit of their billions of dollars of R&D investment. But what I saw at the same time was our challenges, you know, were all self-inflicted. Now the the fact that the quality of service had gone down, the fact that the cost structure was bloated, and so if the problems are self-inflicted, that's great news because you can correct them. And so my first week on the job, I spent it working in stores, and listening to the frontliners for them to tell me what was broken and what we needed to do.
0: Did they know that you were who you were or was this like oh, a yeah, cover yeah, yeah. boss I, I, thing? My okay. guy
1: was Hubert, CEO in training. I brought my two ears. You'll see that everybody at Best Buy has got two ears and just one mouth so that we can listen. And I learned so much. And so in, in a turnaround, you start with people. What did they tell me? I said, Hubert, do you know that the search engine on the site is not working? I said, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, said, well, type Cinderella you'll get Nikon cameras. Well, it rhymes, but it's not quite the same. Oh my gosh. Uh, and that they, it gave me the idea to give the blue shirts the authority, the power to match Amazon prices. Mm-hmm. right? Because at the time, there was showrooming people coming to our stores and talking to our blue shirts and then leaving empty-handed to buy online where prices were supposed to be cheaper. So if the blue shirts had the power to match online prices, we wouldn't lose the uh, The the sale. So the turnaround started with people, listening to people, building the right team at the top. And then to improve the economics, my first priority was grow the revenue, always number one. And to the extent that we need to cut costs, which we did, start with cutting what I call non-salary expenses. Pretty much in any business, that's the bulk of the cost structure. So as an example, at Best Buy, do we sell a lot of TVs? Yes, we do. They're big, they're thin, so they break. And at the time we would break probably every year about $200 million worth of TVs. That's a lot of money. If you can
0: reduce- Just this just TV, in transit and in the warehouse and then moving them around and all that?
1: Coming from the vendor's warehouse on the way to the customer's house, $200 million. If you can cut this by 50%, you've saved $100 million. Customers are happy and we're happy. And so you only reduce headcount as a last resort. Right? And so this idea that people are not the problem, they're the source. You know, The last approach in the turnaround was a focus on creating energy. In a human organization, energy is not a finite quantity. As a leader, through your behavior and your actions, you can create energy. I think we probably all have experienced bosses who are draining the energy versus bosses who are creating the energy. So people were at the center of the first phase. And then once we completed the turnaround, that's when we started to focus on purpose So what do we want to look like when we grow up? What kind of company do we want to build? And that's how we started to work on this, enriching life through technology business. But note that we didn't start with strategy. We started by improving what was broken.
0: How do you deal or how did you deal with, look, you're not going to have 100% buy-in. Not everybody's going to be bought into your strategy or the way you want to go about this. So what did you do with the naysayers? Did you just let them early on? I feel like you have to let them opt-in or out early? Because last thing you want is someone who's not on board hanging around.
1: It went into phases, Aaron. On day one, when I joined, I told all of the executives, today, everybody starts with an A. I don't care what happened before. All of you get to decide how long you want to keep the A. I'm not the decision maker on that. It's, uh, And in a turnaround, candidly, so here's a rule. When things go well, you give credit to the frontliners. When things don't go well, you look to the top. I'm a Maoist, Fish rot from the head. You know the approach to change management is to change management, and in the first four to eight weeks, I changed You know, uh, three out of the seven members of the executive team. But then over time, you work with the team you have. You continue try to upgrade the team. The turning point was when we started to clarify leadership expectations, because that's another one. And I'll admit something. Earlier on in my career, I would spend a lot of time when recruiting or promoting somebody on expertise and experience. Over time, I've spent more and more time on who is this person, what kind of a leader is this person? In fact, I remember when I was being interviewed to be the CEO of Carlson Companies, which is another Minneapolis-based company uh, right before Best Buy, Marilyn Carlson nelson who was the daughter of the founder and I was going to replace her, asked me a question.
0: Travel, right? Travel
1: and hospitality.
0: You picked the hardest categories, Hubert, I have to tell you. Travel, hospitality, technology, electronics, retail. (laughs) And Aaron, the
1: question she asked me during the interview was, Hubert, tell me about your soul. Who asked this question? And yet, you know, when we work with other people, we work with whole human beings. And so we started to clarify leadership expectations. And it was very clear with the leaders, if you don't agree with these expectations, That's okay, I don't have a problem with that. Simply you cannot work here, that's okay. You know, you can be a Best Buy customer, which is a delightful thing, but you can't work here. So that's how challenges in the implementation, but in terms of leadership, that was two important milestones.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. By the way, retaining four out of seven of your leadership team is actually pretty phenomenal. And I love the idea of everybody starts with an A. It's like I had another guest saying, instead of calling people out, let's call people in. It's the same kind of reverse thinking to get to the same goal, but I think in a more optimistic place of empathy. I love that. I'm definitely going to steal that and use that. And I just want to go back to something you said earlier. The thing that I think a lot of folks don't understand, especially with large publicly traded companies, is it's very complicated to manage your reputation relative to your operations. And what I mean by that, and I'll use J&J as an example, I know you sit on their board. I was listening to this NPR story the other day saying, on the one hand, J&J, thank God for that one-shot vaccine. And they play such an important role in helping to eradicate this virus. And at the same time, they're dealing with settlements around the opioid crisis. And it just goes to show you that there are many facets and many faces to these companies that are trying to focus on purpose and hit their mission and their vision. It's not simple. And what I've always said is it's not what you do. It's how you react to it. It's what you do after. And I think J&J is a great example. I'm not just saying this because you're on their board of being very transparent. And I give Alex a lot of credit for this, but being very transparent and very deliberate with their communications because everything comes down to communication.
1: Everything comes down to communication and actual behaviors. And here I give a lot of credit to the iconic company. They're they're really values driven. They're here to make a positive difference uh, in the world. And there there was an interesting moment in their history, which was the Tylenol crisis. So go back. Remember, there was some some scare about the products being infected. And at the time, they decided a complete recall of the product at great expense and then changed the packaging so that the products couldn't be tampered with. So to your point, as human beings or as organizations, we get thrown all sorts of different things at us. And, you know, there's so many things we don't control in life, right? Nobody decided to create this pandemic. It's how you deal with it. And I think from a leadership standpoint, as leaders, we get called to be, I would say, thermostats rather than thermometers, right? So when there's a crisis, how we handle this? Uh, And I'll give a, a Best Buy example. You know, in January of 2014, between 2012 and 2013, you know, we had had a good record of recovery during the months of November and December of 2013. Our sales didn't meet our expectations. And as you know, in a, if you're a public company, that's a big deal. And so we knew that when we announced that in mid-January, the market wouldn't like us. The, the share price had gone to, from a low of 11 to about $39 during the, the first 12 months. But when we announced, it went down to 27 or 28 something like this. So for anybody, that's a big drop, right? But the day before, I gathered senior leadership team, top 100 people at the company. I said, how do we want to react tomorrow? Do we want to surrender and say that everybody who was predicting our death was right? Or do we want to say, look, we made a few mistakes. We're going to learn from these mistakes, and then we're going to move on. And so you and I are movie buffs, apparently. So I asked, why do we fall, Bruce? So that we can learn to pick ourselves up. And that's what we did. And you've quoted some numbers about the share price. I think today it's at 115. And so it's never going to be linear, but how we lead during these moments of crisis, having humility and and candor and transparency and resilience, these are important. So it's back to this idea of why am I here? So it's this notion of purpose and, and leading from a place of purpose and humanity. It's always always there.
0: I hadn't thought of it quite like this before, but the notion of reacting to temperature or controlling the thermostat, and I think. It all comes down to control because if you're always reactionary, you can never be proactive. You can't be performative. If you take control of the temperature and bring it down, eventually everyone's going to feel more comfortable, and that'll equate to confidence, and they're going to follow your lead, whether it's internal or external customers, right?
1: Yeah, because uh, you know, as leaders, irrespective of the level, people look up to us. So I've known ever since I've been in positions of leadership that if I walk in the hallway and I feel depressed or angry. People are going to freak out. Whereas if I'm upbeat and positive, not in an inauthentic fashion, I think that's going to be contagious. So I've always believed that a key role for me was how I made people feel. I remember in October of 2012, so when we unveiled our strategy with our team at the time when things were really grim. <laughs> Do you think, Aaron, that people? after I spoke for maybe 20 minutes, that people remembered everything I said? Absolutely not, right? (laughs) But the feedback they gave me is that I showed confidence and optimism. I showed respect for the organization and that we were going to be able to make it. So it was all about how the energy I created and how I made them feel. And many of us, self-included, we grew up believing that our left brain, you know, how smart we are, is the key thing. That's so wrong. It's about what do we do to create an environment in which the team can be successful? And it's a mind shift that's so significant. And I think the magic that happened at Best Buy would not have happened if we had not been able to create that environment.
0: Do you read any Brene Brown or have you followed Brene Brown? Of at course, all? of course. I love her. Me too. So one of the things among so many that I love about her and what she says is when she talks about vulnerability and leadership, she says... Don't be vulnerable because it's self-serving, be vulnerable because it serves others. So if you're going to make yourself vulnerable, if you're gonna open yourself up, make sure it's because you're trying to help others, not trying to justify or rationalize your own behavior or make yourself feel better. That is exactly what you're talking about. That is what we're talking about when it comes to vulnerability and creating that environment where people feel good. Yes. The other thing I just wanted to touch on, you mentioned it a little bit earlier and it's so of the moment, you're no longer with Best Buy you moved into a chairman role that ended at the end of 2020, you still saw one of the scariest, one of the most precarious, most fragile moments in human history, not just from a health standpoint, from a business standpoint. In the same year, we also saw the murder of George Floyd and the, for good reason in this way, resurgence of very important conversations around equality and equity. I have two roles. I'm in a software startup, but I still am chairman of my agency. And a lot of my work is in crisis and issues management and change management. In fact, I know a lot about Best Buy just through having worked with Hisense over the years. and Oh, was, wonderful. So, so I learned quite a bit. I know you guys had an incredible partnership as well, and hopefully that still remains today. One of the things I've had to do over the last year and a half, and it's been draining, is work with our clients and brands on finding the right words and the authentic narrative to help surface the values that will then turn into actions when it comes to addressing systemic inequalities and inequities. And that even starts with first explaining what's the difference between inequality and equity. And I had one situation, an organization, where they refused to even say Black Lives Matter in any of their communications. I'm trying to explain to them why it's important. And it wasn't because they didn't believe it. It wasn't because they were at all racist or bigoted. Is quite the opposite. It's because they conflate social issues, which are important, with being political issues. Yeah, and that is still the single hardest thing to delineate between. And I'm just wondering, in your experience, not just at Best Buy, but you're on the board of Ralph Lauren, you're you're a Harvard Business School lecturer, you're on J and J's board. You had this incredible turnaround. You worked at Vivendi as a senior person. You were president of Carlson. You've had this incredible, enormous arc of a career how do we tackle the differences between humanity and identity politics when everything is about humanity? How do we get people to understand that and to make sure that that is what we're aiming towards right now? Because organizations are led by humans. Organizations don't have values. Humans do, which then impart them into organizations.
1: Yeah. And I think that so much has changed in the last 6, 12, 18, 24 months. Uh, and if you go back 10 years ago, as we started the the only focus in business was you know running the business and making money and so
0: forth. Yeah, we didn't talk about any of this stuff. Only Ben and Jerry's might, might have in Patagonia because yes. they're like the OGs, but no one talked about this stuff.
1: But today, the, the role of leadership teams, of CEOs, the scope of what they do and how they lead, all of this has changed. You're not just taking care of your employees and your customers and your shareholders. You have to look at things around you. As I said, if... Uh, the city is on fire, like after the murder of George Floyd, you cannot run the business. So of course you have to tackle this. Or if the kids in Minnesota, whether they live in rural areas or disadvantaged in urban areas, cannot learn at a distance, that's a big problem, including for your employees. Right. So what you find, I think this was so clear in the last 12 months, that I think we've all seen beautiful examples of leadership leading from a place of purpose and humanity. So Starting with the health crisis, that meant at Best Buy, we decided, Corey, my successor, was still executive chairman, to say to close the stores, even though we were an essential retailer, because she felt, we felt that we could not operate the store initially. Safely. With the safety of our employees and our customers. So we moved to curbside pickup, and then we developed some procedures. Now it's very safe to uh, to shop at Best Buy, but we had to see It was interesting with people working from home or working in challenging situation in the stores we saw the whole person we didn't see a worker right we saw the whole person and the need to take care of the whole humanity if the city is on fire of course you have to 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 deal with this uh, uh, systemic racism you have to end it every business leader i know today is convinced that Uh, from a business standpoint, forget from an ethical and moral and human standpoint, from a business standpoint, we need to end this. They understand this intellectually. And I think many of us now also understand it emotionally because many of us have gone through the journey of personally discovering the pain of our Black employees and colleagues in the community. And then it becomes like any business problem. You have to solve it. It all goes back to this idea of the company is a human organization. And I want to give you one more story. That really helped me understand this idea of human magic and what it takes to, uh, to unleash it. One day, there was a mother coming to one of our stores with her young child. This young child had had a uh, dinosaur tour as a gift for holidays. And unfortunately, you know what happens, the toy was damaged, the head was not really in good shape. Right. Right. So according to the boy, the dinosaur was really sick. So they go to Best Buy at any other store, or at Best Buy years ago, you would have been sent to the toy aisle with the hope that maybe there's a new dinosaur you can buy. This is not what happened in that store on that day. There was two blue shirt Best Buy associates who saw that they took the sick dinosaur, went behind a counter and started performing a surgical procedure. And for those of you who are watching Good Doctor on Amazon, you know, really walked the child through the steps of the surgical procedure. Of course, substituted a new dinosaur, but gave the child a cured dinosaur. Now, Aaron, do you think there was a standard operating procedure at Best Buy on how to deal with sick dinosaur? Was there a memo from the CEO on, this is how you'll deal with sick dinosaurs? Of course not. It's the associates who found it in their hearts to help that young child and the mother and came up with doing that surgical procedure. And when I saw that, this is when I truly understood why our results were becoming quite extraordinary and completely irrational. And because we had created an environment where every associate could feel that what they were trying to do in their own life, and for most of us, it's doing good things to other people, they could do at Best Buy. They could be the best version of themselves. They didn't need to be told what to do. And they felt that they could make a, a difference. That's what I call unleashing human magic. And to me, that's the biggest secret to creating extraordinary outcomes for all stakeholders. We don't need to choose between any one of the stakeholders. And it's really this idea of a declaration of interdependence for this next era of capitalism is to create a future that's more just and more sustainable. And I think a lot of what I've learned over the, the many years in business and certainly at Best Buy has taught me some of these principles. I hope we can create that future that does not exist yet, but that uh, needs to be better.
0: You just described in some ways a point of arrival because culturally you created a change that, like you said, is sustainable and you're seeing it manifest itself in the customer experience. And it doesn't mean selling them another wireless speaker for their house or another Wi-Fi booster. It means making people feel good. And going back to your point about happiness, because look, I'll sometimes deconstruct taglines and vision statements from companies and be like, really, you're going to change someone's life. And how is Uber going to change someone's life or whatever? And I focus a lot on permission. Where do you have permission to say certain things? But I think, though, the way you connect the dots between basically historically an electronics retailer and life and. that bridge of happiness, I think is really kind of genius. And I have one more question for you because currently you're lecturing, you're an author now, and you're also serving on boards, sitting on a board, not the board that you used to run, but a board where you are truly there to provide input and guidance based on your expertise. What do you think the new role of board members and their level of engagement and being active and helping to guide a company and a public company's leadership team, what do you think that role looks like now versus even when you were CEO and chairman of Best Buy back in 2012? How has that changed?
1: Every company is going to be different, but there was a tendency in the past to consider for many management teams, almost the board as a necessary evil, or you want to keep them at a distance. I think boards, have a really important role to play. Historically, there was three things that we would focus on. Do we have the right CEO and management team? Do we have a strategy and is it working? And are we not doing things that would lead us to go to jail, right?
0: The compliance and...
1: (laughs) Yeah, the scary stuff. (laughs) Uh, I think increasingly, there's another dimension that's being added that's very much related to what we talked about with human magic, diversity and inclusion. If it is so important, what we've talked about today, then I think that boards need to understand, you know, the culture call it the culture at the company, the progress towards more diversity and inclusion. And it's hard to understand that from the boardroom. And so what I would do at Best Buy is every year we would take the board to visit one of our markets or warehouse or and spend time with frontliners. I think from a diversity standpoint, it's very interesting. I think things are really changing. And I hope we we can stay with it. Increasingly, companies are setting goals in terms of addressing diversity and inclusion matters, in in particular around the issue of uh, race. And boards are holding management teams accountable and looking at measures and key performance indicators. And so I think this this whole human dimension is being added more deeply than ever before. And I think that's an encouraging step.
0: I think that's well said. And I'm going to have to leave it there. Hubert, it's so... Incredible. And so it's my honor to meet you. And it's so great to have you on the show. And for our listeners, it is the heart of business. It's out now. You can get it probably anywhere you want, but I'm sure on Amazon, right?
1: On Amazon, every bookstore around the country, every online place. And if you cannot find it, email it at hbj at h2team.org and uh, I'll point you in the right direction. But Aaron, thank you for this wonderful dialogue and conversation. Thank you. Let's be the best leaders we can be, right? To create a future that's better.
0: I 100% agree. And I try to do that every day. I don't know succeed, but like they say, or I've heard them say, you uh, you fall down seven times, you get up eight, right? So I'm trying. <laughs> Is your book, audio book available? Is that on Audible yep. by chance? As, as well. Yes, exactly. And, and who's the narrator? Is it you? So I did the introduction. Okay.
1: I wish I would have had the time to do the whole thing, but with my publisher, we couldn't do it. So a wonderful gentleman by the name of William is my voice, Uh, but I did the introduction.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you have such a soothing, lovely voice and accent. It's too bad you didn't do the whole thing. But I also know firsthand how hard it is to do that. It's a huge time commitment to do it and do it right. And there are people who are just professionals who do it really, really well. But I'm glad you you have the... uh, you've got the opening. So that's awesome. Yes. So I wish you all the best. I can't wait to have you back on. I'm sure we'll talk about something equally as amazing and, and interesting and, and helpful for others. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Aaron. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quipkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsey Hand, Dara Cawthorne, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com.